0: Good morning, beloved. Let's turn to God's word. Let's pray together. Father, we pray. Give us a clear, give us a wonderful sighting of Jesus this morning. Let us see him in his glory. Let him know him. Let us know him in his love. And let us follow him in genuine faith, O oh Lord. Help us by your spirit and your word. To be faithful to Jesus this morning, we pray. It is in his name that we come to you, Father. Amen. Some people don't know Jesus. They know things about Jesus. They know other people who know Jesus. They may even do religious things, faithfully. But they don't know Jesus. That's because they're looking for Jesus to fit expectations they already have. They they were never looking for Jesus to surprise them, just to fit into the religious boxes that they had drawn up. But Jesus tends to zig when we think he's going to zag. That's what makes following Jesus such an adventure and also, what makes it so easy to get things wrong? Our, our text this morning is part of a section of Mark's Gospel where, where Jesus experiences increasing conflicts with the religious people of his day. They expected one thing, but Jesus was quite another. From Mark chapter 2, verse 1, which our brother Dennis preached so wonderfully for us last week, down to Mark chapter 3, verse 6. Again, in these five scenes, we're getting sharper conflict between Jesus and religious people. And in these five scenes, we're seeing Jesus surprise everyone. And I suspect he will surprise not just the people of that day, but to see Jesus in this text clearly, it's probably going to surprise us too. This morning we want to look at two of these five scenes. Uh, This morning I pray we are are struck with wonder again as we look upon the Lord. I I hope we have not gotten so familiar with Jesus that we think we understand him completely. I, I hope we haven't gotten so routine in our walk with Jesus that we think he will only ever do what we expect. If that's how we're thinking, then we don't know Jesus. When we look at Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 to 22, I want us to see three things about Jesus here. Number one, that Jesus calls sinners. Jesus calls sinners. That's in verses 13 and 14. Number two, Jesus eats with sinners. Jesus eats with sinners. That's what we see in verses 15 to 17. And number three, Jesus parties with sinners. Jesus parties with sinners. That's what we see in verses 18 to 22. Follow along with me as we read Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 to 22. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, They cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of untrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the wineskins. But new wine... Is for fresh wineskins. Jesus calls sinners. Look again at verses 13 and 14. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. I'll try to get a sense of this scene. Jesus is traveling, and teaching as he often does. He starts out by the Sea of Galilee. There's a crowd that gathers around him as, as is often the case and he is traveling now and still maybe walking and teaching. The crowd is going along with him and he comes up to Capernaum Uh, He is near the city gates of Capernaum because that's where the tax collector's booth would have been. The tax collectors would have been posted up out there really to tax people as they were traveling and selling their wares. And so there's a kind of crowd milling around the city, and there's the crowd that's traveling with Jesus. And so those crowds now begin to merge as Jesus approaches the town. The text says... As he passed by, he saw Levi. Jesus is the kind of God who sees you in a crowd. He notices you. And Jesus notices those who are despised and rejected. Levi is a tax collector. As a tax collector, Levi would have been considered unholy and unworthy. He would have been seen as a pawn in the hand of Rome uh, and an agent of Roman oppression of the Jews. The crowds following Jesus, the crowds traveling in and out of town, they would have hated the sight of Levi. They would have considered him a sellout, working for the enemy. One scholar writes this, a Jew who collected taxes was disqualified as a judge or witness in court, expelled from the synagogue, and a cause of disgrace to his family. The touch of a tax collector rendered a house unclean. Jews were forbidden from receiving money and even alms from tax collectors since revenue from taxes was deemed robbery. Jewish contempt of tax collectors is epitomized in the ruling that Jews could lie to tax collectors with impunity. Tax collectors were despised. To have them touch your house would make your house unclean. Jews had nothing to do with him. But Jesus is the kind of Savior who recognizes The despised persons, like tax collectors. And notice this, recognizes them publicly, even in the presence of the crowds that despise them. Jesus loves the hated. He associates with them publicly. Jesus is the kind of Savior who, even after he has just finished doing a holy thing, like teaching God's Word, he goes and makes intentional contact with people who are regarded as unholy. No one is beyond the Lord's notice. No one is beyond Jesus' loving concern. No one is inconvenient for Jesus to acknowledge publicly. If you think that, beloved, then it means you don't know Jesus very well. In all of our neurotic uncertainty about whether or not our lives are pleasing to God, we need to know that Jesus chooses tax collectors while the crowds are around this is why it's not rational to ever think that Jesus has forgotten us he's just not like that Jesus is the kind of guy who notice in the text along the way is intentionally paying paying attention to those who are left out and then Jesus publicly identifies with them in front of all of their enemies Jesus would even kick it with LeBron James, despite me hating on him all the time. He's that kind of Savior. When we encounter this kind of love, we need to respond to it. Jesus says to Levi, follow me. Levi left the tax collector's table and followed Jesus right away. God's love should be met with our following. And this, of course, is the nature of the gospel, isn't it? So, friend, if you're listening this morning, you're viewing this this morning, I want to ask you, if you're not yet a Christian, what are you waiting on to follow Jesus? He is calling you even now by name. He is calling you to come follow him, to become a disciple of his, to become a student of his, to worship him as your Lord and your Savior. And his command is simple, follow me. Will you leave your tax booth? Will you leave everything that you have been building your life on? And will you follow Jesus? His love is meant to be responded to with our following. But this has applications not just to people who are not yet Christians. It it has applications for us in all of our personal relationships, doesn't it? I want us to understand something from this text. Jesus doesn't hate people because we hate them. His acceptance isn't determined by our acceptance. The Lord ain't mad at somebody because we mad at them. And one of the radical and confrontational realities of the gospel is that Jesus loves people who we sometimes wouldn't. If we're going to follow Jesus, beloved... We're going to have to learn to love those that we despise or others despise and to identify with them openly. Are there any relationships in your life like that? Where you can hear the Lord saying, follow me, and you see that he's on his way to spend time and to get to know people who are despised? Will you go with him? And this has applications to Christianity in general. Sometimes we Christians are too pro-crowd to follow Jesus. That's why we should never confuse American Christianity with Biblical Christianity. These are not synonyms. American Christianity likes the numbers and likes the crowds, but Jesus likes the lonely and the despised. See, in our pride, we, we want to be known. We want people to, to say our names. We want more followers on Twitter or Facebook. We want more likes. We want more adulation from the crowd. But, but Jesus, well, he himself is going to be despised and rejected by men, Isaiah 53 tells us. So it's no surprise that in his social life, he is actually drawn to others who are despised and rejected by men. See, biblical Christianity grows on the margin, not the mainstream. The future of biblical Christianity is with hated professionals like tax collectors and overlooked poor people who are crippled and with despised social outcasts. Biblical Christianity is going to follow Jesus into the margins. Well, this applies not just to Uh, Christianity, but it applies to our politics, too, doesn't it? There's a whole lot of politically motivated hate going around these days. Just check out how Christians, Christians now, treat those who vote differently from them. We have prominent pastors saying things like any real and true believer is going to vote for President Trump in this election. Some others are saying that any person who would decide to vote for a Democrat ought to be excommunicated from their church. Beloved, it's a special kind of religious and political hatred to add voting behavior to the gospel. That is not the biblical gospel. I mean, if Jesus attended those churches where the crowd is Democrat-hating Republicans, he would call Levi the Democrat out of the crowd to be with him. He notices the the despised and the rejected. But in some churches, made up primarily of Democrats, Republicans and Trump voters, which are not the same thing, are are questioned, suspected, and alienated. They receive a lot of hate as people wonder out loud, how could you ever... Vote red or orange, as the case may be. If Jesus were in those churches where the crowd is Republican-hating Democrats, he would call Levi the Republican Trump voter out of the crowd to be with him. Now, before any of y'all reject this as some form of both-sides-ism, just know that Jesus is his own side. He didn't come to take sides, he came to take over. He is building his church with the least, the lost, and the left behind. He is able to recognize such persons with impeccable and infallible vision. And while some Christians are joining the world in its partisan political fights, Jesus is quietly ducking the crowds to single out the ones everybody else rejects surprising like that. Our politics make it especially clear that many of us, we don't know Jesus all that well because Jesus calls sinners. And sinners feel his love and they follow him. Which brings us to the second point. Jesus eats with sinners. That's what we see in verses 15 and 17. Look there with me. So we have switched now from out by the city gates into Levi's home. The scene grows more intimate and more interesting. The scene grows more intimate because, again, notice there, he is reclined at Levi's table. In the Middle East, in the first century, eating at someone's home was an act of hospitality and a sign of friendship, of love. The host assumed responsibility for caring for the needs of of their guests and the guests assumed responsibility for accepting the hospitality and reciprocating in fellowship. So to get together like this in the first century in the ancient Near East uh, is to begin or to grow a friendship. So this is no longer simply spotting someone in a crowd outside the city this now is moving into relationship and jesus is like that he not only pulls us out of the crowd he pulls up a seat at the table with us to eat with us those who are sinners and the scene is also more interesting we find out that Levi is not the only tax collector who followed Jesus. Notice in verse 15, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. Levi was no fluke. Jesus has just taken over the IRS. All the tax collectors are, are clicked in with him. And Jesus has also gathered a lot of sinners. These sinners are people who habitually break God's law. These are irreligious people. They don't follow Torah. They are people whose lives uh, follow a a pattern of sin. Uh, And with this label, they are rejected by the religious society. So these are not godly people in the eyes of society. And the expectation is that these are the people whom God will judge and who will not enter the kingdom of God when the messiah comes yet the tax collectors and sinners are the ones who not only follow Jesus but eat with Jesus it reminds us of what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 21 verse 31 when he says truly I say to you the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. That's surprising even to this day. The holiest person in the universe surrounds himself with the unholiest people in town. And they are enjoying each other's company in a cozy, personal, in-home, at-the-table setting. Can you feel the scandal of that? This is some Shonda Rhymes kind of stuff right here, scandalous. I I mean, let me illustrate this. Imagine if you saw me or you heard that another church member saw me, pick up a a prostitute and give her a ride somewhere. And, And then not only that, but me and the other pastors, the deacons and the deaconesses, We're at her house and her colleagues are there uh, and some other ruffians from the neighborhood are there and we're having a cookout. We're chilling. We're playing spades. We're eating good food. Um, You know what a scandal that would be among all us religious folks. If I heard that about you, I'd have some questions myself about you. You see, when we read this text, we're not like, we're not the disciples in this text, right? Notice where the disciples are. They are in the house with Jesus, learning to fellowship with and love and engage um, people who are not like Jesus, the sinners and tax collectors. No, no, no. We're more likely to be outside the house being the scribes of the Pharisees, raising the question about, should they be doing it? I don't know about that. That don't look right. You see, the scribes and the Pharisees are scandalized by what they see. And that's why they asked the question, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? In Judaism of that day, to go to a Gentile's house or to eat with sinners would make a person unclean before God. So they want to know, why is a teacher of God's word hanging out with sellouts and evildoers? And they ask their question in a shady way. They don't even ask Jesus. They ask the other people. But they ask loud enough so that Jesus can hear them. So Jesus answers them in verse 17 with these well-known words. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And we can translate that with two comments to so bring it up to speed. If Jesus says, number one, since you all good, you don't need me. And he says, number two, I didn't come for you anyway. Jesus' response is shady too. He's saying the religious people are sin sick too, but they don't know it or they won't admit it. They need a doctor to cure their sin, but they think they're righteous and won't get help. Spiritual blindness to our sin is the worst disease of all, beloved. That's the one disease that keeps us from the great physician who heals all our infirmities. Refusal to really admit our sin and our need for spiritual healing is the one thing that condemns us to hell. There's no rescue from that kind of pride, there's no escape. From that kind of self-righteousness and beloved mark this sometimes we don't know Jesus or don't know him well because we won't admit our sin we won't admit our need but Jesus did not come for the righteous the self-righteous the religious with their rules The kingdom is not for people who think they have it all together and don't need a savior. We don't think that holy people can have social relationships with unholy people. That's our religious expectation. But notice the surprise. Jesus flips that on its head. In fact, the Lord is saying that he has come to tax collectors and sinners precisely because they are tax collectors and sinners. They are sick with sin. But but Jesus does not invite them to eat with him, notice now, on the condition that they first change. There's no mention of repentance in this text. In fact, in most of Mark's gospel. We are seeing a mesmerizing picture of God's free grace in accepting sinners. James Edwards writes this. The lesson is trenchant. Fellowship with Jesus is based on a radically different standard from Torah, the Old Testament law. The scandal of this story is that Jesus does not make moral repentance a precondition of his love and acceptance. Rather, Jesus loves and accepts tax collectors and sinners as they are. Jesus communicates in word and deed that accepting and following him are more important than following Torah. The kingdom of God belongs to people who see their sins, but more importantly, people who see Jesus as the Savior who loves them. The kingdom of God belongs to people, not those people who are strict and scrupulous about religious rules. It belongs to people who who know that they need a Savior and who trust The only thing they need is that Savior. The the kingdom of God is for people who are ratchet and know it. We ought ought to to make a song out of it. We ought to sing it. If you're ratchet and you know it, raise your hand. (laughs) If you're ratchet and you know it, raise your hand. If you're ratchet and you know it and your life will surely show it. If you're ratchet and you know it, raise your hand. That's who the kingdom comes to. This is why I like the lyrics of come ye sinners, poor and needy. I especially like that verse that says, come ye weary, heavy laden, lost and ruined by the fall. Then the writer says this, if you tarry, if you wait till you're better, you will never come at all. Because waiting to come to Jesus is not all that different from thinking that you don't really need Jesus. It's a kind of self-righteousness. It's a kind of self-righteousness that we think is in development. We're just people who are sick with sin and don't know it. If you tarry till you're better, you will never come at all. It is better now to confess our sins. And now to run to Jesus. Because he has come to call sinners to himself. And that's who the kingdom belongs to. Sinners who trust in Him. So we see Him in this scene in verses 15 to 17. It's like a commercial for the feast of heaven that is coming, that is promised to all of us who are waiting on Jesus' return. Next week, Lord willing, we will celebrate the Lord's Supper. And when we do so, we will be looking forward to the return of Jesus and His promise that we will eat this meal in the Father's kingdom with Him face to face. Whenever we follow Jesus by faith, we are RSVPing for that feast. All of us, sinners though we are, will sit at the Savior's feet, in the Savior's presence, enjoying His love. So my friend, don't let the knowledge of your sins keep you from the knowledge of God's love in Jesus Christ. Bring your sins to Jesus. Leave them on the cross where he died to pay the penalty, to pay the judgment for your sins. Believe in his resurrection when he rose from the grave for your righteousness and for your defeat of the grave. Enjoy the fellowship of his spirit until he comes and and until he gathers us in his eternal kingdom. My beloved beloved friend, if you're not yet a Christian, we want you to get in on this. We want you to get in on a Savior's love who calls you and accepts you and eats with you, died for you while you were still sinners, while we were still sinners. You're not going to find a better love than the love you find eating with Jesus, believing on Jesus, and following Jesus. And my Christian friend, let me ask you a question. If you had seen Jesus go to the house of a tax collector or a Pharisee, or in our day, if you had seen Jesus go to a house of a, of a drug dealer or something, would you have asked the question the scribes asked, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? A far better question is, why does Jesus, not why does Jesus eat with sinners, but the question, why are we not? Why are we not eating with sinners? Can we say we are following Jesus if we never have anything to do with sinners? I'm not saying it's okay to do what sinners do. It's not. But can we be among them as friends and neighbors and co-workers who love them? Not as a project to make them something different, but who love them who loved them because we were loved, not as projects, but as objects of love? Can we enjoy their company in personal settings the way Jesus did? Are we following Jesus in eating with sinners? How else will they know God's love? Which brings us to our third thing. Jesus parties with sinners. He calls sinners, he eats with sinners, and to have a relationship with him is equivalent to partying with sinners. See that in verses 18 and 22. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came and said to him, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with him? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. A new wine is for fresh wineskins. Religions always seem to generate tribes and cliques. And the tendency of religious people is to argue about which tribes and which cliques do it right. That was the problem in ancient Judaism. There were Herodians, Essenes, uh, There were Sadducees and Pharisees. There were John's disciples. All all religious parties or cliques that thought they did it right and others did not. It was a problem in Corinth. Some Christians were saying, I'm of Paul and I'm of Apollos. Beloved cliques and tribes are a problem in the church today. In verse 18, two groups are mentioned. There's John's disciples and there's the Pharisees' disciples. John's disciples uh, followed John the Baptist. They were a new group, really, on the scene, uh, who came between the close of the Old Testament and right at the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry. John was the forerunner of the Messiah, you remember. The Pharisees had been around for about 200 years at this point. They, they, They developed after the Maccabees' rebellion, about 186 B.C., The name Pharisee means separated one or holy ones. We might say saints. They were against the Hellenists. Those were those Jews who believed that Jews and Judaism should sort of fit in with the Greco-Roman culture of the day. They, They rejected that outright. The Pharisees didn't care about politics. They didn't care about who ruled. What they cared about was practicing Torah and practicing their religious traditions. They were strict about the law. Very observant. They believed in the scriptures. They believed in the sovereignty of God. They believed in human responsibility. They believed in the supernatural. They believed in angels and demons. They believed in the resurrection from the dead. They were essentially the Bible guys of Jesus' day. Pharisees were only about 1% of the population. But they had an outsized influence on the culture of Judaism and the culture of Israel. The Pharisees were the fundamentalists of the first century Judaism. Now what John's disciples and the Pharisees' disciples have in common in verse 18 was that they both fasted. Fasting was one of the three pillars of Judaism, together with prayer and the giving of alms, charity. Even though the Old Testament only had one day that required fasting. That was the Day of Atonement. Later, a few other days would be added here and there, and people could individually fast if they wanted to, but there was really only technically one required day of fasting. But in the Day of the Pharisees, they had began to sort of uh, elaborate days of fasting to the point where they fasted every Monday and Thursday. So they had been shaping... Religious expectation. They had been shaping um, the the sense of what it was to be godly based on their tradition. Verse 18 says there were some people, we don't know who they were, they apparently weren't the disciples of John and the Pharisees, but some other people who wanted to know why these two groups fasted, but Jesus' disciples did not. And again, the question assumes that fasting is right and there's something wrong with Jesus and his followers if they don't do it. The Lord's response is stunning. He doesn't really give them a theology of fasting. He doesn't really even object to fasting as such. So you notice in verse 20, the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and then they will fast in that day. So Jesus doesn't have a beef with fasting as such, but Jesus' response really shifts the focus away from the religious practice of fasting and it shifts the focus back to him. He compares himself to a bridegroom in a wedding. His disciples are the groomsmen or the wedding guests. And he says basically, listen, when you're at a wedding, you don't go to the wedding... And act all sour and sad and and down and and self uh, denying. We go to a wedding, we celebrate. And he and says to him, "Now listen, it's like going to a wedding and and waiting for the couple to finish taking their pictures, and you know sometimes it's a long time They finish taking their pictures, and then to come into the reception." and to be received in the reception so that the party can really start, so that people can eat and and dance and really celebrate. Now, in ancient Judaism, a wedding reception or a wedding celebration like this would have been seven whole days, full of party, where the crowds were kind of always there at the bride and the groom's home. Uh, the expectation to rejoice at a wedding in ancient Judaism was, was so strong that that even rabbis would set aside Torah for a week to party with everybody else. And so Jesus is saying, listen, it's, it's like a wedding to be with me. It's like a party to be with me. And when I'm with my disciples, that's no time for them to be sad or down or denying themselves. That's the time for us to rejoice, to celebrate, and be glad. That's what it's like to follow Jesus and to know Jesus while he's with his disciples. It's a celebration. And by using this analogy of a wedding, Jesus also teaches us two other things that are, that are surprising, that are stunning. In the Old Testament, the, the wedding and the marriage analogy is never used of the Messiah. It's almost always used of God And his relationship with Israel. You see that in Isaiah chapter 61 verse 10. Isaiah chapter 62 verses 4 and 5. Hosea chapter 2 verses 14 to 20. It's pretty much never applied to the Messiah. So in using this imagery, Jesus is taking something that would have been known to be a statement about who God is to his people. And applied it to himself. He's saying, I am that God. And, and for those who have ears to hear, they were to recognize that that's who was with them and why they should celebrate. This is the day of their visitation. But there's a second thing in this imagery that's surprising, and it is Jesus' head at his crucifixion. Did you see it in verse 20? That they will fast when the bridegroom is taken away from them. In a normal Jewish wedding at that time, it wasn't the bride and the bridegroom who left the wedding to say go off to their honeymoon. They stayed in the home that had been prepared for them as husband and wife. It was the wedding party who would leave. So this is unusual. He's saying that something uh, really kind of violent in the way the language is used here, he's been taken away, surprisingly, unexpectedly, from them. This is an a, a allusion to his crucifixion. It's being carried away. Arrested, tried, nailed to the cross in the place of sinners. So the passage starts off with the question about fasting. But it ends up with a spotlight on Jesus as the incarnate God who gives his life as a ransom for his people. Now, what everyone needed to understand then, and what we all need to understand now, is that this Jesus, in this text, does not fit the old religious model or the old religious program. That's the point of the two parables in verses 21 and 22 about the wineskin and the shrunken claw. The new thing that God is doing in sending his son into the world to rescue us cannot be attached to and cannot be contained by the old thing of Judaism. It can't be attached to It cannot be contained by any of our man-made religious tradition. Try to put Jesus in any religious system and he will tear apart the system. He will bust open the system until it's ruined or destroyed. Here is a Savior that calls sinners by name in front of crowds that despise them. Here is a Savior that chills at the sinner's table eating with them. Here is a Savior that rejoices with the sinner as long as they are together. And that kind of savior was not the expectation of religious man. That kind of savior destroys legalism. That kind of savior defies religious reform movements of every kind. There are no boxes that can hold this Jesus. You cannot make a few adjustments and tinker around with old religion and think you're going to just add Jesus on top of it. He smashes all of that. The ones who truly know Jesus, are the ones who receive his love even though they are sin sick. The ones who truly know Jesus are the ones who are are glad to party with him even though religious people are trying to shut them down. This is the Jesus we need to know. This is the Jesus of free grace. This is the Jesus of new mercy. This is the Jesus who willingly dies on the cross for our sins. This is the Jesus who is raised from the grave for our salvation. This is the Jesus who receives us into his eternal kingdom, who went to prepare a place for us. And beloved, this is the only Jesus. The only true Jesus. This Jesus loves Does be sure you love this Jesus that you follow him. Be sure you love him more than you love your religious rules. Let him make you nervous by breaking the boundaries of your expectations. You you won't know him deeply until you come to realize that his kingdom defies. All of our assumptions. Jesus brings us something new, something better, something everlasting. He brings us an eternal kingdom. And we find our joy in this expectation breaking Jesus, the Savior. I wonder if you know Jesus. I wonder if you're willing to follow him. If you're following him or following religion, can you hear him calling you? Calling you out of the crowd by name? Will you receive his invitation to sup with him, to eat with him? And will you rejoice in the great salvation he brings as your? bridegroom and look forward to the day where our wedding with him is consummated in glory. This is Jesus. He calls sinners, eats with sinners, and parties with sinners. He doesn't look like what the religious people expect, but he's so much more than we could ever dream. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that you would Help us to behold Jesus. Help us to see and to savor, to know and to love, to delight in Jesus Christ, your Son, our Savior. Give us grace to follow Him. And following Him, O Lord, fill our hearts with gladness, we pray. And we pray, Lord, grant us grace to go out to the same people that Jesus went out to and to tell them of Jesus, that they too might know him, and might come into his kingdom, and your church be full. Do this for your glory, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen.